So we are in the book of Philemon today. It is a one-chapter book of the Bible. It is not the shortest book of the Bible. That would be 3 John. There's your Bible trivia for the day. You're welcome. But it is the shortest of all Paul's letters. And we've been talking about transforming relationships, which if you're new here, that's the term that we made up. It's not a biblical term, but it's the term that we made up to refer to anytime one of God's people chooses to invest in someone else for the sake of the gospel. It could be a non-Christian and you're hoping to get to share the gospel with them. It could be a believer or an unbeliever who's going through a particularly hard time and you want to be there for them in some way, helping them through grief or helping them through unemployment or helping them through a relationship ending or sadness or whatever the case may be. Could be a kid in school who needs a mentor, any number of things, somebody who needs a disciple maker. Uh, so we want to keep track of those so we can know how God is moving in our community today. So we can know as a church staff and as a church as a whole how to pray. So there are in your pew rack in front of you, actual physical paper cards, no QR code this time, just a, a paper card that says transforming relationships on it. If you would take one of those and let us know something about one of these relationships you're involved in or more and drop them in the offering plate on, the out, on your way out, uh, not in the offering plate, in the, in the transforming relationship box on your, on your way out. There's a table on your right. Just drop it in there or leave it in your pew and we'll pick it up afterwards. That helps us tremendously. Just give us whatever information you feel comfortable sharing. That helps us know how to pray and know how God is working in our community. So in the book of Philemon, we're, we're talking about a different kind of transforming relationship today. In fact, at the end of this message, you may go, hey, this is something I want to do. You may commit by writing one of those cards. This is someone I want to reach out to today. It's a different kind of relationship, and it's summed up in one of Jesus' most famous teachings, the Beatitudes. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 9, Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. And I want you to know, ladies... The, the, the term sons of God does not exclude you. And this isn't one of those cases like we see often in Scripture, like we saw commonly in language up until about 20 or 30 years ago where they would use male pronouns to refer to mankind in general. We would say, for instance, mankind, or we would say men when we meant humans. Uh, this is not one of those examples. This is Jesus acknowledging that in the ancient world and even today in some parts of the world, Sons were esteemed above daughters. Daughters were seen as a burden. Sons were seen as a blessing. And so sons were given special honor in their family, especially the firstborn son. You got the, you got the inheritance. You got the father's name. You got the blessing. What Jesus is saying is, that's not the way it is in my kingdom. In my kingdom, whether you're male or female, you can be treated like a son of God. But here's how. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. If you want to be honored in the kingdom of God, then make peace. Then be someone who reconciles people to one another or people to God. That's our ministry. Now, I know, I know that's not something we enjoy talking about. In fact, I bet many of you can't remember the last time you heard a sermon on peacemaking because it's hard. I don't know about you, but I've got enough drama in my own life without borrowing someone else's drama. And so we look at someone who's in a conflict and we say, that's not my problem. It's not my concern. Uh, there but for the grace of God go I. Or we do something even worse. We pour gasoline on the fire by choosing one side or the other and jumping in, in, in and, and, 
and gossiping about the person or attacking the other person on the other side of that conflict. We're called to be peacemakers. Sometimes we do the opposite. So uh, I can tell you as a pastor that it's hard work and it, it doesn't always work when you try. Sometimes you end up with two people who hated each other. Now they both hate you because you've gotten involved. I've got the battle scars. I could tell you stories. But you know what else I have? I have regrets over the times I didn't get involved. Times when I saw people who were in conflict and I said, no, I'm not going to insert myself. I am going to let them claw their eyes out and I'm not going to try to do anything. And I'll tell you, the regrets are worse than the scars. And I don't want you to be there. I want you to experience the joy that comes from doing what God commands, the joy that comes from seeing people reconciled to one another and to God, being a blessing to a family, to a workplace, to a school, to a home, to a community. So what I want us to do before we really get into this story because we're going to look at the story of an actual peacemaking effort that worked. Before we get into it, I want to ask you to bow your head, and I want you to pray a prayer in which you ask the Lord, Lord, show me a relationship in my world, around me, in my life, that I need to work as a peacemaker in. Show me a conflict in my school, in my workplace, in my community, in my family. It may be even a conflict that you're a part of. Someone's mad at you or you're mad at someone else. But Lord, show me some conflict that you want me to act as a peacemaker in. Would you pray that prayer right now? I'll give you a moment silently and then I'll sum it up out loud in prayer. Would you bow your heads and pray that right now? Lord God, I thank you for every person here. They're not here by accident. You brought them here this morning for a reason. And maybe, maybe that reason was to hear this message. Lord, only you know. I pray, Heavenly Father, that each one of us would have open hearts to hear what you're saying. And Lord, show us the conflicts that exist in our little world. In the, the, or the, the circle that we inhabit Help us, O oh Lord, to see the people who are at odds with each other or with us. Grant us the wisdom and the courage and the power to make peace. Lord, we don't know what we're doing, but you do. So show us the way. And I pray that this message might be a help in that. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I bet most of you don't know anything about the book of Philemon. So let me, let me share a few uh, pieces of background. Again, this is Paul's shortest letter. It's very intimate. It seems like a, you're, in, you're eavesdropping on a conversation because that's exactly what you're doing when you read this letter. It's not like his other letters. Um, and, and here's, as a side note, I hope one, one thing this does besides inspire us to be peacemakers, I hope it inspires those of you who don't actually study the Bible to start studying the Bible. And I say this in all respect. I'm not trying to shame anyone, but if you're one of those people who has let the devil convince you that you're not capable of understanding Scripture, I want this to change your mind. I want this to show you that reading and studying Scripture can be like doing detective work. 
where you, you actually read between the lines and try to discern what was going on in the life of this person or this church where this apostle was writing. And it's very exciting to do. You put yourself into a different world and you learn things about humanity and about yourself. It's sort of like CSI without the blood and guts, although when you get to the book of Judges, there's some of that too. So what we can discern from reading between the lines of the book of Philemon is there are three characters, three main characters. The Apostle Paul, of course, is one. He is writing from prison in Rome where he is imprisoned by the Roman Empire for preaching the gospel. Then there's Philemon, the guy who the name is book, the, the guy whose the book is named after. Philemon is a wealthy Christian in the city of Colossae to which Paul later writes the book of Colossians. We studied that earlier this year, and that'll come up again in this message. Philemon is a wealthy believer who Paul led to salvation. The third character is a guy named Onesimus. Onesimus is a slave owned by Philemon who has escaped from his master and possibly, we don't know this, but we think, has has taken some of the property that belongs to his master maybe to fund his escape, maybe to uh, get along uh, without any, any, uh, any provision while he's away. Anyway, he has left. He has escaped. He has run away. He finds his way to Rome where he locates Paul in prison. And we don't know what he says to Paul. Possibly he goes to him and says, I've done this thing. Uh, I don't know what's going to happen to me. Give me some advice. Paul ends up leading Onesimus to faith in Christ. And then the two of them decide, you know, instead of of you staying an escaped slave, you need to go back to him. But I'm going to write your master, my friend Philemon, a letter urging him to set you free. And that's what this book is. That's the letter. So let's start with verse 1. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints." And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Now, Paul says some really, really kind things about Philemon, and he is not a man to engage in empty flattery. So we can assume that Philemon is a very righteous person, a very sincere Christian. You might say, well, how can that be since he's a slave owner? And all I can say is this is part of the process of Philemon becoming complete in Christ. You can be a devout believer and you've still got sin. And as we looked at when we studied the book of Colossians, the whole point of the Christian life is that every one of us would become complete in Jesus Christ. That all of us would reckon with the sin that's remaining in us and confess it and get right. I want you to see what comes next in verse 8. He says, Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I appeal to you, I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. What Paul is doing here is he's saying, listen, I'm an apostle. 
and you're not. I'm an old man and you're not. I'm in chains for the sake of the gospel. You're not. I have every ability to command you to do what I'm about to ask, but I'm not going to do that. Why? He says, for love's sake. I want you to do this not because you're afraid of me as an apostle or you're afraid of the wrath of God or I don't want you to do it because I manipulate you in some way or make you feel guilty. I want you to do it because you choose to do the loving thing. You see what he's doing here? He's not just concerned about Onesimus' freedom. He's concerned about Philemon's soul. He wants both of these men to grow in Christ. He's trying to bring them together in love. All right, so next, verse 10, he writes, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. It's kind of an interesting image, isn't it? When you lead someone to Christ, you become their spiritual parent. It's a beautiful thing. Some of you don't have actual physical kids. You can be a spiritual parent by leading someone to Christ. He says, Verse 11, formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. And we don't see that because jokes don't translate from one language to another. Paul's writing in Greek, we're reading in English, but this is a joke because the name Onesimus in Greek means useful. He's making a play on Onesimus' name by saying, you used to think he was useless. It's sort of like when you call a fat guy tiny, right? Uh, it, it's a joke that he's making to soften the request that he's about to make. Because as evil as slavery is, as much as we justly hate slavery, to ask someone to give up their slave is asking them to give up a serious financial asset. You're asking them to take on a, a financial hardship. It's like if I said to you, hey, don't you want to give your car to that person over there who has no car? Don't you want to let that homeless person live in your house rent-free? Well, asking them to do that is a significant burden. And so Paul is softening his request. Listen, guys, this is a master class in persuasion. And we get this so wrong. We either get so self-righteous when we're trying to correct someone else that we come on strong and we make them feel guilty or we turn them away completely or, or we're too weak to even ask. Paul shows us how it's done. You put yourself in that other person's shoes. You say, okay, if I were the slave owner, what would I need to be told? What would I need to hear in order to be persuaded to do the right thing? This is how you do it. All right, here's the actual request. Verse 12. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. Again, I don't want to force you. I want you to choose to do this. For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but now much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So, if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. Notice he never just comes out and says, free this man. But he says, wouldn't it be better to have him as a brother instead of a slave? Wouldn't that be more glorifying to God? Wouldn't that be more beneficial to both of you? Again, it's persuasion, not arm twisting. It's persuasion. It's not throwing guilt. It's not threatening. It's not manipulating. It's not extorting. He's trying to win this guy over. 
And then he says, he's got to throw this in at the end, verse 18, if he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your very self. So, so far, Paul, you could say, is not taking a big risk. He's writing a letter. He's in prison. What's Philemon going to do to him if he's mad, right? But now he says, listen, I recognize that I'm asking you to take on a significant financial burden. And in fact, this guy took some stuff that was yours in order to fund his own trip away. And you may think that he owes you money. And if that's going to get in the way of the two of you reconciling, then I'll write the check. Let me know. And remember, Paul was not a man with a lot of money. He was a guy who didn't get paid for preaching like I do because he, he started churches from scratch. So he had to earn his living with a separate job. He didn't have money sitting around, especially not while he was in prison. And yet he is putting his own skin in the game. He's saying, I will do whatever it takes to bring you two together. And then he throws in this reminder at the end. But remember, when you're thinking about debts, you owe me your salvation because I'm the one that led you to Christ. Without me, you're lost as a goose in a snowstorm. So just keep that in mind. Now, verse 20. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ, confident of your obedience. I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. So that's the question, isn't it? What did Philemon do? We don't have any record in Scripture of what he did. There's no, there's no second Philemon that tells the rest of the story. But there are two clues that give us the assurance to say Philemon did exactly what he asked. Here's how we know. Number one, when you read the book of Colossians, Colossians 4 verse 9, Paul mentions, I'm sending this letter with Onesimus to you. What that means is that Onesimus went back, after he went to Philemon, he went back to Rome. He spent more time with Paul. Paul sent the letter to the Colossians, a book of the Bible, to the church in Colossae, through Onesimus. That was not something you did through a slave. That's something you did through a leader of the church. So that means that by this time, Onesimus isn't Philemon's slave anymore. He's a co-leader of the church. He's a fellow elder or staff member, leader of the church in Colossae. Here's another evidence. Why do we have the book of Philemon in our Bibles in the first place? What that indicates is that Philemon didn't read it and say, what does Paul have to do with me? It's none of his business. He needs to butt out. He didn't tear it up. He didn't burn it. He didn't throw it away, which tells us that he obeyed what Paul said. And more than that, he took that letter with him to the church that met in his home, and he read it on a Sunday morning. And he read it as if to say, listen, this is a word from an apostle of Jesus Christ and I've, I've prayed about it and he's right and I'm setting Onesimus free and he's my brother in Christ and all the rest of you who own slaves, you ought to do the same. And then they sent it to other churches and it began to circulate around the New Testament world and that's how it entered the canon of Scripture. But now I need to answer a separate question. A question that I haven't broached at this point, but, so, but one that some of you were thinking. And that is, so why doesn't Paul just say, let all slavery end? 
Why doesn't any apostle, anybody in anywhere in the New Testament say, slavery should be abolished, ban slavery now? There are critics of Christianity who say, because that call is not found in Scripture, and because slave owners like Philemon are treated as uh, righteous men in the New Testament, there are those who say that means that the Bible is pro-slavery. And if they're right, then you and I can't trust the Bible. But they're not right. So why isn't there a clear call for slavery to be abolished? I'll give you three reasons. Three reasons, and I'm going to work fast because we're, we're low on time. But there's a gospel reason, there's a realistic reason, and there's a practical reason. The gospel reason is because that's not the purpose. That's not the function of the church. That's not what Jesus and the apostles came to do. Believe me, when Jesus landed on earth and the Christian movement first took off, there was any number of social issues and evils in society that had to break the heart of God, that had to break the heart of his people. I'm talking about uh, abortion was a common thing in Roman culture. Infanticide, where you, you leave an unwanted baby on the side of the road and just let it die, uh, that was common. Uh, I'm talking about poverty, where the, where the rich took advantage of the poor. I'm talking about violence. The, the Roman legions were guilty of all kinds of violence and beyond that, other violence in society. I, I'm talking about sexual immorality on a cultural level that you and I can't even comprehend, no matter where we grew up in America, and slavery, and other issues like that. And yet never in the scriptures do we see the church saying, okay, you know, our purpose should be to stand against this issue. Our purpose should be to overturn society's mores when it comes to this issue. As much as they hated slavery, as much as they had to hate infanticide, as much as they had to hate uh, the manipulation and the immorality of society, they didn't focus on any of those things because their focus was on spreading the gospel. Their focus was on saving people's souls. Their purpose was on introducing people to Jesus Christ, the shed blood of Christ on the cross and his power that raised him from the dead that can change someone's life. And they assumed that as people got saved, these other evils would go away because the more people you bring to the love of Jesus, the, the fewer people are going to do these evil things. And so that was their plan to change the world was simply the gospel. And isn't it ironic that we, as God's people, we often get that backwards and we say, oh my gosh, this world is so evil. Let's go change it. Let's go fix it. Let's go make it right. Let's, let's, let's turn whatever tables we have to turn over. Let's, let's, let's manipulate the system. Let's, let's do what we have to do to, to fix this problem and this problem. And God's saying, well, but you've forgotten the gospel. Who's, who's sharing the gospel with the lost? And is any wonder that we as churches aren't making the difference we once did, even though we desperately want to make a difference. We've forgotten the gospel. There's a realistic reason they didn't call for abolition, and that is that they didn't have any power. The original Christians were poor men and women. They were, they were the lowest of the low in society. For, for Paul or any of the apostles to stand up and say, today we call for the abolition of slavery, would be like me on a, on a July afternoon saying, today I, I declare an end to high humidity in Texas. It, it wouldn't work. That's the realistic reason. But then there's a practical reason. A lot of people don't think about this, but 
slavery in Rome was so widespread, one-third of the city of Rome, that's about 400,000 people, were slaves. One-third of the city. In the countryside, the ratio was even higher. Something like 40% of the population were slaves. Rome had already endured one slave revolt. You ever seen the movie Spartacus? It's based on truth. It happened uh, a couple hundred years before Christianity came on the scene. Uh, if, if the apostles had run around, all the Christians had run around inciting slave rebellion, do you realize how many hundreds of thousands of people would have died? Instead, God chose to end slavery by saving the souls of millions of people over a long period of time. And the book of Philemon was a big part of it. Because even in this country, when, sad to say, a lot of our Southern Baptist forebears 150, 200 years ago were saying, oh, you know, slavery's fine, that's the way God intended things. Others who were more biblical, who were more in agreement with the Word of God, would bring up Philemon and they'd say, yeah, but what about this? What about, what about what this indicates about the heart of God? The, the uh, New Testament scholar F.F. F. Bruce wrote, this letter, Philemon, brings us into an atmosphere in which the institution of slavery could only wilt and die. So God's way of ending this evil institution was by saving millions of souls and by appealing to the souls of redeemed human beings. That's how God chose to do it. Now let me bring you back to this idea of this relationship between Paul and these two men at odds. Let me just sum it all up and remind you what we're talking about here. Paul's in prison. This guy shows up, says, hey, remember me? I'm the slave of your good friend Philemon. I'm afraid he's going to want to kill me because I ran away and I took some of his stuff and I don't know what to do. And Paul had every right by our standards to say, I'm in prison. I got enough problems of my own. Hit the road. But he didn't. He also didn't take one side or the other. He didn't say, well, he, you're his property. Go back. And he also didn't say, well, I mean, run for the hills. He'll never find you. Instead, he said, this is an opportunity here. First of all, for you to come to know Christ as your true master and savior. Second of all, for you two to have a relationship as brothers, not as master and slave. And it's an opportunity to show the world what God does, what the gospel does. So he put his, his reputation and his finances and his name on the line. And it worked. And it worked even better than Paul thought because the ripple effects of this action led to the end of slavery worldwide. Think about that. God takes what little efforts we make and he does far more with them than we could possibly imagine. So at the beginning of the message, I ask you to pray about some relationship that's going on in your world. And I don't know what relationship specifically you were thinking of, or maybe you were just asking God to show you one. You couldn't think of one. But it could be that today you're going you're gonna to walk out of here saying, I need to apologize to this person because I know we've been at odds too long and I've been waiting for them to apologize to me, but I'm going to take the first step. And it could be that, that you leave here knowing that it's time to forgive someone who hurt you in the past. And it could very well be that you're going to walk out of here today or in some day in the near future knowing that uh, God has made it clear to you this particular relationship is where you need to intervene. 
You need to speak some hard but necessary words. You need to persuade someone to take steps that lead to reconciliation. And think about the blessing of seeing a family reunited. Uh, of seeing two former friends become friends again, of seeing two bitter enemies call a truce. You can be part of that. That's what God called us to do. And and I know you might be saying, but why? Why would I get involved in that? Why is that my job? Just remember this. Jesus, the Son of God, watched as we were opposed to God the Father. We were at odds with Him. And that meant we were separated from God forever. And can we be frank about something? That wasn't Jesus' problem. That didn't affect him in the least. He could have said, okay, not my problem. I'm happy here in heaven. But he came and got involved. I talked earlier about battle scars, and yes, there are times when that happens. Jesus has literal scars from his involvement. He's got scars in his hands and his feet and his side to this day. And yet... He did it for the joy set before him. He wouldn't change a thing. He did it. He died on a cross so we could be reconciled to God. And he rejoices to this day every time one of us comes home to our Father. So if you want to know why, that's why. If you want to know why you should get involved in these difficult relationships, it's because he got involved in yours. And he brought you home.